from deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm Adam Schick. Florida saw their first loss of the Jim McElwain era this past weekend in a classic showdown under the lights in Death Valley. And while the 35-28 defeat to LSU is certainly a setback, the Gators remain in control of their destiny for a return to the SEC championship for the first time since 2009. But even though football is currently enjoying a well-deserved bye after a frenetic seven-week grind, here at Gator Tales we never stop giving you exclusive access to the orange and blue. Today, we'll give you your football fix while also widening our view of what's happening right now in Gator Nation. With basketball practice officially underway and the season rapidly approaching, we'll talk to Gator Zone senior writer Chris Harry about the beginning of the Mike White era. Later in the show, we'll head out to the pitch and find out how Becky Burley is using some new motivational techniques to get the most from her team as they make a run toward another SEC crown. But first, we promised you football during the bye week and now it's time to give it to you. Before we get Scott Carter's take on the first half of the season and the road ahead for Florida, we sat down with defensive end Brian Cox Jr. In a wide-ranging conversation about football, family, and the future, I asked Brian what the mood was like in the locker room as the Gators prepared to leave Tiger Stadium. Honestly, in the locker room, we all knew we fought hard and we came back, we showed resilience, so it wasn't as bad as it usually is after a loss because it was to a quality opponent. So we just, we wanted to take more away from it than we just wanted to be down. Coach Mack talked a lot about the lessons you could learn from that game. What specifically did you and the defensive line take away from it? Uh, Specifically, just we got to be better with gap control. You know, Fournette, he he sometimes caught us out of our gaps and took advantage of it on the longer runs he had of the night. So it was just mainly emphasis on gap control. There was so much hype coming into the game about Leonard Fournette, and even throughout the season, everyone's been talking about him. What was it like going against him? What made him so tough? Well, one, he's really big, and then two, he has really good vision and patience. So he'll let the entire line clear and then cut it all the way back, and then next thing you know, he hits you for 40 yards. He's the best I've gone up against so far. So much talk about night game in Death Valley and the atmosphere and everything surrounding that. How did it compare to a big game in the Swamp? It was really similar, actually, other than the fact that we're on the other side of the spectrum. You know, being at home in the Swamp is different because on defense is really loud. But when you're away at other stadiums and they got their fans going crazy on offense and the defense gets communicated a little bit more, so it's a little bit different. But at the same time, the atmosphere is similar. Coach Mack talked about how proud he was of the team after the fact and made sure to let you guys know that. How has his message sort of changed over the course of the year? I mean, he's always pretty much preached the same thing, attention to detail, attention to detail. So every time we take the practice field or every time we have a meeting or anything like that film study, he always preaches attention to detail, and that helps us be more focused in on what we got to do. The first half of the season is just go, 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 seven straight games, really tough opponents. Now you get a little break. What do you do during this time off before Georgia? This is the week to get your bodies back. We always have really good practices, so we just want to get our bodies back so we can practice at the best level we possibly can so we can play at the best level we can. I know it's easier now to kind of reflect back on what's happened so far. So when you look at the first half of the season, how do you assess your performance so far? I've been doing all right. Not as good as I I wanted to do, obviously, with the pass rushing and getting some sacks, but I mean, I think I've I've done some pretty good stuff, but I have a lot to work on. What do you feel like as far as the whole defensive line? What have been your strengths? What have been some of the weaknesses you want to work on? I feel like we're a pretty fast and athletic defensive line. Like I 
I said earlier, we just got to work on gap control a little bit better versus power teams such as the LSUs and the Georgias. And other than that, we got to force them into long situations where we can get after the quarterback. How has Coach Rumpf impacted the way that you guys play? What have you learned from him so far? Uh, he's more of a an aired-out type of coach. He lets us get a little bit more freedom than we had in the past with our pass rushes and being able to do different things amongst each other and just different games. He's just helped us in a, a lot of different ways as far as pass rush technique. Before, we didn't do the same things that we do now, and it just helps. You also have a, a strong influence in your life, a guy who played a lot of NFL football, your dad. How does he kind of talk to you about the way you're playing, and how does he help you? Uh, he always grades me pretty hard, like I'm one of his players, which I kind of enjoyed in a way, even though it's usually always the bad stuff before it's the good stuff. But I just feel like if I'm trying to make it to that level, i got to be able to take the coaching from somebody that's already coaching at that level. So it's easier for me to take it, especially because it's my dad. But he always you know, tries to steer me in the right direction. A lot of people got to see a different side of your dad when he was on Hard Knocks last season with the Falcons. What was that like having everyone see just how goofy and fun and, and crazy he was off the field? I mean, it was awesome, man, because my dad's really, he's really cool. I mean, he's just always making jokes and stuff like that with his players. So it was good to just watch him, you know, have fun. What current or former teammate have you learned the most from? I would probably go with Dominic Easley as the teammate I learned the most from. His work ethic and how he approached the game was something I took away when he left. I just, you know, try to incorporate that in my game every time. What current NFL players do you really look up to and model your game after? I would say a DeMarcus Ware or a Jason Taylor. I like how they play the game, you know, relentless pass rush, and they always use their strength and their length to their advantage. What's been your most memorable game as a Gator? The Tennessee game. It was a ridiculous game. We came back and we won in the final seconds of the game, so it was it was really cool. What's this whole season been like, just the emotional ride of people not expecting anything out of you to being in the top 10 and having a game like LSU where everybody's now watching? It's kind of where we wanted to be this whole time and where we expected to be almost. You know, We, we put in a really, really hard work in this offseason, and it just now it's coming to fruition and showing. When you've got a Saturday off, you only have one of those during the entire season, do you stay engaged in football? Do you watch games, or is that the time to get away from it? Oh, no, I'm definitely going to be watching games this Saturday. I mean, if you really love this game, it never leaves. So, I mean, I'll, I'll definitely be watching. Up next, you have to play in Jacksonville in the Jag Stadium. If you could pick one stadium in the NFL that you'd want to play in, what would that be? I would go with the Arizona Cardinals. I like their, their little open dome. Or actually, when the Falcons build this new stadium they have, that one's going to be pretty nice, so I would like to play in that one. Maybe even play for your dad at that point, right? Possibly. <laughs> when you're away from football, you have some time. What do you like to do when you do get away from the game? I take names in Madden. Um, play that quite a bit. And then other than that, I mean, while the season's going, I'm always engaged in football, whether it be watching a film or watching other people's games. So I don't really get away from it. Toughest Madden opponent on the team? Uh, me and John Bullock go at it quite often. So he's probably the toughest that I've played so far on the team consistently. Who's your team? Who do you play with? you have one team you always go with? I've been playing with the Falcons lately. Got deep balls, Julio Jones in the corner. Oh, yeah. Julio gets his fair share. Going up against Georgia, what's that experience like playing in that game in Jacksonville, that environment? Oh, uh, That's actually one of my favorite games because it's pretty much split right down the middle 50-50. You just see one half of it being red and the other half being orange or blue. So I always enjoyed that game. Even when I was a freshman, I read sure to just go into it. It was just a cool experience. Coaches, players, and fans wait so long for football season to arrive that it's almost cruel how quickly it flies by when you're in the thick of it. Given that, we wanted to take a step back and reflect on the first half of what's been a tremendous year so far for the resurgent Gators. 
Scott Carter and I discussed where the Gators have been and where they're going, which begins with how they'll respond to their first defeat. There was disappointment. You know, McElwain was there on the edge of the field after the game. You know, he was basically shaking every player's hand he could and say, hey, you know, keep your head up. His message afterward in the press conference, he said they showed up there expecting the win, and we don't win. You didn't do your job to the best of your ability that day. So there's just a, a lot of confidence, I think, comes when that's the message from your head coach. And, you know, we haven't seen that really in recent years around this Gator program. Maybe hanging close to LSU in Death Valley in a night game in years past, I don't know if it would have still bred the confidence that I think they took from that. And, you know, now they get this two weeks off, and they're in such good shape in the division. If they take care of their business, they're going to make it to Atlanta. And I think that's really where this team's mindset is right now. So we control how we're going to deal with this. We control how we're going to go to work. We control how much we're going to do to get better. We control how we're going to stay together. And, you know, this, I think, will tell a lot about this Gator football team. Another development from LSU was Jorge Powell getting hurt. So then Florida left with just one kicker, and Jim McElwain has had a, a very interesting solution to the one-kicker problem for the Gators. Yeah, Adam, if you have any eligibility left, <laughs> uh, you can go out. They're having some open tryouts this week. and You know, it's, they got over 200 people to sign up for this yesterday after they sent out a message on Twitter. Kind of something funny to think about here in the middle of the season having to kind of do that, but that's just the reality of the situation. And what that means as far as on the field right now, Austin Harden, who, you know, he's he's been pretty inconsistent in his career at Florida. He's back as your primary kicker, and, you know, in close games, they're going to need uh, some solid kicking there. and That's been a sore area for them, and I'm sure they're hoping that Austin Harden has overcome his injury and can find some consistency here late in the season. So the bye week marks essentially the halfway point of the season. So now reflecting back on the first half of 2015, who's your most surprising player? Receiver Antonio Callaway is, in my view. He is a true freshman receiver. This offense needed playmakers, and you saw it at LSU on Saturday. He had the 72-yard punt return for a touchdown that tied the game, and he also had a great one-handed catch that led to another scoring drive. And He just plays beyond his years. I mean, you just never know with a true freshman how they're going to kind of fit in and what they can really do the first year. But Callaway uh, is a guy who has been impressive, really, from the start of the season. You know, you look at him right now, he's got 16 catches. Adam, 308 yards, two touchdowns. Those numbers for a true freshman compare favorably to some of the best receivers Florida's had in recent years. Names like Rudiel Anthony, Jacquez Green, and Percy Harvin. So he's certainly holding his own in his uh, first year on campus. While we're handing out our high school yearbook superlatives here, most impressive unit for the Gators through the first half of the season? Well, this is going to be maybe a surprise to some, but I've got to go with the offensive line just because that was supposed to be by far this team's weakest spot. And, you know, nobody's going to compare them yet to the great offensive lines in Florida history or any team's history, but for what they are, this group has done its job. You know, LSU got five sacks, had consistent pressure on Saturday. There's still some a lot of room for improvement, but but to me, I mean, it was a ragtag unit that you just didn't know what to expect. And they've used a combination of veteran players such as Trip Thurman, newcomers, Martez Ivy and Fred Johnson. There's even a guy like Antonio Riles, who is a former defensive lineman here and moved to offensive line. So they've just put together a collection of different players. And to me, that speaks a lot to the coaching ability of Mike Summers, the offensive line coach. I've always kind of been a big fan of his. I think one of Jim McElwain's best moves when he took this job was to retain Mike Summers. That was such an area of concern for this team, and I think through the seasons, what, first seven games, they've held their own. 
the bye week comes at a really interesting time just because not only is it right before the Georgia game and after such a big game like LSU, but also after your first loss. And Jim McElwain was waxing philosophical after the game about all the ways you can respond from being knocked down in life and overcoming adversity. And, and this is the first real hurdle for the Gators. So what are your expectations for Florida in the second half of the season? I think they believe that they're good now. You don't get to 6-0 and and 4-0 in the SEC if you're not playing some pretty good ball. And even the loss to LSU, you know, it was a disappointing outcome for the Gators. But I, th- I think they did enough out there to where they feel pretty good about themselves moving forward. It's a good time for a bye week for the Gators, not only just from the standpoint of getting a little time to heal from some of the bumps and bruises, but as we talked about getting Harris more acclimated, maybe find a way to get the running game going a little bit to help him. That's an area that's struggled recently. But uh, if they went out, they're going to Atlanta. Georgia's always a tough opponent, but Georgia is not maybe the team that a lot of people thought they were at the start of the year. You know, they were picked pretty much as the favorite by most folks to win the SEC East. They've struggled, but it's a hard game to read, as we saw last year when Florida upset a team that was ranked number nine at the time. So uh, Georgia's going to come in with a lot to play for, but I think for this Florida team, there's nothing greater to play for than their first trip to Atlanta since uh, 2009. And to do that, getting a win against Georgia is going to be huge in that process. And then, you know, they have Florida State at home. They've struggled against Florida State in recent years, but at least on paper, that should be a lot closer matchup than it has been the last few years. So, uh, you know, they've got a lot to play for still. Well, I'll tell you what, that's a good football team in our locker room there. And a bunch of good guys, guys that care, guys that have invested, and guys that are starting to understand what it is to give of themselves for the benefit of others. And I'm proud of them. I'm really proud of them. Before we move on to some other Gator sports, it's time for another Gator Tales Trivia Challenge. Florida Georgia is known for its neutral site setting in Jacksonville, but it hasn't always been played on the banks of the St. Johns River. As a matter of fact, the first ever Florida Georgia game was played in a city that hasn't hosted one since. So the question is, in what city was the first Florida Georgia game played? Email your answers to gatorspodcast at gmail.com or tweet at Gators Podcast before Tuesday at midnight for your chance to win a $25 gift certificate to the online Gator Sports Shop. Let's move on. Don't look now, but the calendar is quickly approaching November, which means basketball season is on the horizon. Remarkably, it'll be the first time in two decades that someone other than Billy Donovan will patrol the sidelines for the Orange and Blue. If you follow Florida basketball and stay locked in to GatorZone.com, you know that senior writer Chris Harry gets closer to the team than anyone else. Now, we bring him directly to you here on Gator Tales, as we'll do throughout the basketball season to stay connected to the launch of the Mike White era. But before looking to the future, Chris says it's inevitable to see the shadows of the past. You walk into the gym and you expect to hear that voice that you've always heard. Uh, you expect to see that person that you've always heard, and he's not there. His image is still out in the atrium and kind of dominates the whole uh, uh, basketball facility still. But uh, I, I give Mike White some credit. He deserves some credit there because he knows how important the program is and what Billy Donovan did for this program. And now he's accepted a very difficult charge of trying to build it from where Billy Donovan left it. Now he left it at 16 and 17, but this is an entirely different team, Adam, than it was last year. I know a lot of people say, oh, well, he's got a lot of his players back. Yeah, they got five players back from last year's team. 
and five players that are looking to play better than they did last year. But there's eight new guys on this team, eight guys who did not play for the Gators last year. And now Mike White inherits that bunch, and now he's trying to weave his way of doing things into this new bunch. And there's really no expectations from their part. I think there was some expectation that the team's going to be pretty good. But in terms of what it's going to look like right now, they're kind of finding that out on the fly a little bit. With the overwhelming presence of Billy Donovan on this program, how has Mike White embraced that? How can he move forward keeping that a part of the program while also finding his own way? Well, I think he goes with the brand, with the Gator brand, which obviously Billy Donovan was the face of the Gator basketball brand. I think he leans on the success of the 14 NCAA tournaments over Billy's 19 seasons as a as a place to start when he's out there on the, on the recruiting trail. You know, there's some players on this team, whether it's Dorian Finney-Smith, uh, Devon Walker, Casey Hill, who experienced as high a level of success as you can get without winning a national championship a couple years ago by going to the Final Four. So it's not like winning big isn't something that's built into this locker room right now. Those guys know. Now we fold some other guys into the equation, and now eventually it's got to be Mike White's team, but until Mike White coaches the game, it's still kind of that Billy Donovan specter over it. He's okay with that. He's comfortable with that. He's kind of, like I said, embraced the fact that Billy Donovan built this, and he's embraced the challenge of seeing where it can go from here. In terms of the returners that you talked about, the bold-faced names that everybody knows, how have they evolved as players during the offseason? What, what are the expectations for how a Dorian Finney-Smith has improved, a Casey Hill, so on and so forth? Well, I tell you what, uh, Dorian Finney-Smith, and I've been to a lot of the skills instructions, I've been to the scrimmages, he's been sensational. Last year he led the team in scoring and rebounding. I don't know that the pressure is going to be on him to do that again. I think he will lead the team in scoring. But now you bring John Igbunu into the equation, who was, a, I believe, 7.7 rebounder guy as a true freshman at South Florida two years ago. He's going to take a lot of pressure off Dorian Finney-Smith needing to rebound in the low post. Dodo took his shooting up 15 percentage points from the three-point range from his sophomore season to his junior season last year, and I believe the expectation for him is going to be to score a lot from that four position, be a stretch kind of four player, and be an SEC all-star kind of player. Now, he he was last year, but he wants more. He's got an NBA game, and there's a lot more to Dorian Finney-Smith's game than, than maybe that we've seen. The thing that Mike White has encouraged, he needs more vocal leadership out of this guy and Dorian Finney-Smith is that that's not necessarily in his DNA but I tell you what he's very vocal during practices if guys are doing something wrong he's stepping in and talking to them and I don't think Dodo ever felt that was necessarily his role or something that that he wanted to do but Mike White says you have to do that now you are a fifth year senior and I tell you what I don't know that there's a better fifth year senior in the country what have you taken away from the scrimmages so far what stood out to you what do you think has been the most impactful well one thing it's been difficult to ascertain is that they split the teams. So Dorian Finney-Smith and Johnny Boone have been on opposite teams and scrimmages. I want to see what they're like on the same team. And I really haven't seen that with the exception of, you know, mixing and matching during practices. What you do see that is somewhat concerning and something Billy Donovan and his staff had problems with last year, there's still some guys who worry too much about a play that happened one possession ago, two possessions ago, five possessions ago. Guys like Casey Hill, Chris Chioza, Brandon Francis Ramirez, they got to move on. The next play mentality was fantastic here two years ago with Patrick Young and, and Casey Prather and Will You Get and Scotty Wilbekin. Those guys learned that over the years as seniors and have the whole team do that better. Like Michael Frazier was t- horrible at it last year, maybe because he didn't have those guys telling him that they had his back and what have you. These guys got to find that 
that out a little bit, and that's something that Mike White addressed with them after these scrimmages. How has the style changed so far from what you've seen? How is the product going to look different than it did under Billy Donovan? I think they'll still do a lot, Adam, with the half-court pick and roll when they're in those situations. But Louisiana Tech in four years under Mike White was always in the top 10 in turnover ratio. So they're protecting the ball, but they're creating turnovers and fast break points. So he wants that kind of stuff. Now, what he hasn't seen that maybe he had better at La Tech than maybe he gets here, in that transition comes open three-point shots. They've had some great three-point shooters here, obviously, over the years. One so great last year. Some guys are going to have to shoot better. Brandon Francis is a good shooter. Uh, Chris Chios has become a better shooter. I mentioned Devon Walker. Casey Hill, I don't even know if you want him shooting three-pointers. If he's open, maybe he should. But Dorian Finney-Smith, excellent three-point shooter. And I think that's going to carry over to this year. And in terms of being up and down the floor, up and down the floor, now you weave in two other guys. Alex Murphy is, is not his brother. He's not Eric Murphy in terms of shooting open shots. But he's awfully athletic, and he fits into this system really well. They like how he goes up and down the floor. Um, we saw some of his athleticism last year, you know, going to the basket and dunking. And I haven't even mentioned Kayvon Allen, who's the best freshman on this basketball team now. He was set back for about eight days with a concussion on the very first day of practice. But these guys, and, you know, there's a couple of us who have been here a few years. We think he's the most talented freshman, day one freshman, since Brad Beal was here. Now, I'm not comparing him to Brad Beal for a second, but in terms of being a scorer, uh, going to get your own shot, uh, that's not something that's been around here very often. Maybe Scotty Wobekin could do that, but he couldn't do it his first couple years. This guy can do it already. While Billy Donovan was the dean of SEC basketball coaches at the time of his departure, he still lagged behind several Gator coaches in terms of longevity here in Gainesville. One of those is Florida soccer coach Becky Burley, who started the program in 1995 and now leads them in her 21st season. The 13-time SEC champion and 1998 national champion coach has always found unique ways to motivate her squad, and this season is no different, as she presents her team with a new item every week that serves as a symbol for something greater. We talked to Becky about these symbols and how they lead to success. Well, some of them are just things from things that our teams experience. So, for example, like this past week, I brought a golf ball, and the golf ball was from a YouTube talk from a player that had won the High School Athlete of the Year Award. And when he went to accept the award the night before, his father passed away. And so he dedicated the award speech and the award itself to his father and told the story about the golf ball and how the golf ball, when they were originally made, they were just smooth. They were perfectly smooth. And the more that people hit the golf ball and put dents in them, the more they flew straighter and longer. And so the golfers realized, like, they wanted to use a used ball more than they wanted to use a new one. And so this kid used the example of, um, you know, obviously with the passing of his father, he felt like that was a pretty big dent in his life, but he realized that that was just something that was going to help him go farther in life in the end. So we had shown that speech to our team and talked about it, and the way I tied that in last week was, you know, we had a really good weekend. We were a six-point weekend for us in the SEC, but probably one of the reasons we had that was because of some of the dents that we he had taken on earlier in the season. One of the more interesting ones I've seen used this year was the flower after the win against Florida State. So here you are coming off of one of the biggest wins in recent program history, and yet the flower represented how 
fleeting that can be for you. Yeah, I think we try to talk about, you know, no one game defines our season, whether it's a win or a loss or anything in between. And for us, that game, it was a good result for us, but in the end, it was just one game. And so the use of the flower was actually taken from Anson Dorrance at North Carolina. And his symbol for the flower is it's, you know, as that flower starts to fade, it's time to get back to work. So yeah, you can enjoy it, you know, for a day or so, but now it's time to make sure that you get back to work. How have you seen the players respond? Well, I think for some of them, for sure. Like when we've used the green dot, which was the the symbol for like a a traffic signal, and we gave them green Sharpies that say play green. And I mean, a lot of them carry those in their bags and they have them in their bags in the locker room. And I mean, I've seen a lot of them continue to use the green dot symbol. So I don't know. I think there are, it's, it's easier for a symbol to stick with you than it is for just a lecture. And, you know, they get lecture in school all day. So I think we have to be a little bit more creative in our message. How have you seen the use of these symbols impact people even outside of your team? Well, one of my favorite things that we're doing right now is this campaign with the kids in the community that come to our games, which is called Watch the Player, Meet the Person. So, you know, during the game, they're watching the player, but after the game, they can come down to the field and we always have a couple of the players give a message based on a symbol. So like last week, they gave the talk about the golf ball. And a few weeks ago, we did the the one with the Sharpie. I got a text the next day from a parent of one of the little girls that was there and she was dressed in her soccer clothes and she had a little green dot on her wrist to remind herself to be courageous, especially for her, it was about heading. But then even with other coaches, the Illinois women's wheelchair basketball coach, she's also the USA wheelchair basketball coach. They are using some of it. So they use the green dots. And she sent me a picture yesterday of her players' wheelchairs where they had put green stickers on the wheelchairs. So I think it's um, it's something that's it's really simple and it's easy to understand and it's powerful. And I think that's why people follow it. You've had a number of other interesting symbols. There's been a rubber bouncy ball, the time card. Talk about the time card because that is really about collaboration with one of your fellow coaches as well. Yeah, that was something that um, Tim Walton used last year with the softball team. And he talked about how, you know, when they came to practice or when they were getting ready to go on a road trip, their sole focus was softball. And he came and spoke to our team and described the time card to us. And it was funny because um, I was talking to one of our freshmen earlier this week. And this, you know, this was two, three weeks ago where he came and talked. And she said, you know, his talk about the time card really resonated with me because I feel like I don't have enough organization in my life. And I feel like when I'm at soccer practice, I'm thinking about school. And that really framed it for me to be like, I really need to focus in during those two hours. How important is that collaboration among coaches and sharing and in some cases stealing ideas that have proven to be successful? I think that's one of my favorite things about working at Florida is just being able to be around so many people that have been so successful in what they do and being able to use some of their ideas. I've grown a lot just from listening to different people, but I think it's really cool that the environment at UF fosters that. Our team has done DISC for years, which is a behavioral assessment, and tennis just did it last week. And so I think I'm going to go over and do an activity with the tennis team next week to share some of the things that we've done with DISC with our team. And I don't think that happens in a lot of places, so I think it's pretty cool. In line with that, one person who was known as being very collaborative back in his day was Steve Sperger when he was in Gainesville. And I know you had a very special relationship with him. Talk about the ways that you were able to collaborate with someone who was doing things on such a high level, but yet still found time for all the other sports on campus. Well, I think that anyone who knew Coach Spurrier knew that he was he was truly a gator through and through, and that meant 
every part of it, like the university, the other sports teams. And he not only knew what was going on, but he knew specifics. So he gave us a hard time one time. We lost the very first year at the SEC tournament in penalty kicks. And back then it was Yon Hall was the dining hall. And he like yelled across the dining hall, which was like packed at the time. He's like, well, I think we need to be working on them penalty kicks. <laughs> so, you know, it was kind of like, okay, yeah, it's a little embarrassing for him to say that. But like how many football coaches, you know, first of all, knew that we were at the SEC tournament. Second of all, knew that we lost and lost in penalty kicks or even knew what a penalty kick was. So I think that was pretty cool. But in other ways, too, I mean, we the very first year, we for a whole year, we shared a practice facility with them. And, um, you know, he was always very patient, you know, if we went a little bit over. And it was a really interesting dynamic to see, you know, the football team waiting on the sidelines for the soccer team to get off the practice field. Do you have any other favorite Spurrier stories? Everybody's got them, and everybody, I've learned, has an impression as well. <laughs> One of my favorite ones was it was when our kicking game for football was struggling a little bit. I think it was maybe the Judd Davis era, or I'm not sure who the kickers were at the time, but our goalkeepers were training, and they were working on distribution, and so football was getting ready to come on, and the goalkeepers were leaving, and he said, oh, bring those bring those goalkeepers over here. So he said, can I kick a football too? I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> and he, so he hands them a football and asks them both to punt the ball. It was Lynn Patishal and Michelle Harris at the time. So they both punt it. And he's like, well, that's about as good as what we got right here. <laughs> so I think he was trying to motivate his guys a little bit through the use of our goalkeepers. But it was, it was pretty entertaining. You find so many ways to reinvent yourself and to reinvent the way that you lead your team. Where does the inspiration come from? Is it different places? You know, if you don't evolve as a coach, then then that's a real problem. A lot of people talk about, oh, this generation of kids is different than others. Well, you know, I'm sure our parents said that about us and their parents said that about them. I mean, I think that's just an ongoing thing. So evolving is a big part of coaching. I think if you don't do that, then you're going backwards. The Gators soccer team is currently winding down their regular season and contending for yet another SEC title. And that's going to do it for this week's show. We hope you enjoyed a glance at Florida basketball and soccer and look forward to bringing you closer to even more Gator sports as we progress through the year. But next week, we're back to football, with arguably the biggest game of the season set to take place in Jacksonville against the Georgia Bulldogs. Look for that full preview to be available next Thursday morning on GatorZone.com, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. In the meantime, remember to submit your trivia answers to us by emailing GatorsPodcast at gmail.com or tweeting at GatorsPodcast. And also use those same outlets to let us know what you think about Gator Tales and what you'd like to hear in the future. Until next time, I'm Adam Schick, thanking you for joining us on Gator Tales.